what we saw is we saw a spike in our sales that lasted about six weeks and then people forgot and they go back to doing their thing and they go back to living and then everyone's under pressure now everyone's under they're just trying to survive they're trying to make ends meet but this trend hasn't changed we saw a spike after the fires and we see that COVID is probably still around but that desire to support local seems to be a growing trend that isn't going away. My name is Dan Sims and welcome back to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast, where we speak to the makers, growers, farmers and families who just happen to make the best cheese in Australia. This month, we're shining an even bigger spotlight on Aussie artisans, what that means and what it truly takes to be one. For the entire month of August, and beyond for that matter, we're encouraging you all to seek these legendary producers in your own local area. Today, we'll hear from Erica Dibbon from Real Tilbert Dairy, which is located on the beautiful south coast in New South Wales. It's a region that has been through a lot in the past 18 months, in particular facing down the devastating bushfires of late 2019 and 2020, and then of course right into a global pandemic. Let's not sugarcoat it, Uh, it's been tough. Nick and Erica have been in the dairy industry for over 20 years and despite the challenges, remain incredibly passionate and enthusiastic about it, especially when it comes to providing outstanding products for their local community and beyond. At its core, the real Tilba Dairy story is one of strength, community, authenticity, and the word we hear a lot around here, resilience. Here, Erica talks candidly about what it means to live that and of the vital importance of providing for those around the means to them. Plus, how food security and quality go hand in hand and the challenges the dairy and more broader farming industry currently faces. I really enjoyed this very open and honest chat with Erica and we know you are too and getting to learn more about Tilba Real Dairy. Let's get into it. Erica Dibbon, welcome to the Mold Cheese Collective Podcast. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you, Dan, and yourself? Oh, I'm doing all right, Dan, and a very cold, fresh, crisp South Gippsland day down here today. Well, maybe just to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Tilba Dairy? Sure. So my name is Erica. So my husband and I, Nick, we have a uh, dairy farm in the Tilba Tilba Valley. It's around 200-odd hectares. Uh, we milk Jersey cows only. We love Jersey cows. We love their milk. We love the animal. Um, they're so beautiful and nice-natured and sweet. Uh, we've been milking for around 20-odd years, 22 years, 23 years. Um, Nick is from dairy farming stock. I'm more of a townie. I grew up in Bermagui, so I'm more of a metropolis. I think there might have been... <laughs> 800 people when I grew up in Bermagui. <laughs> now it's <laughs> now it's quite a thriving place. Um, but yeah, we um, we started our journey together around 22 years ago, and we really bought an old an old farm that had been um, farmed for many many years and in the um, hands of one family. And unfortunately, it came. But unfortunately for them, it came up for sale. And fortunately for us, we were in the position where we could con our bank into lending us some money to buy it. And um, and we really haven't looked back. It's a ma- ma- magic farm, Dan. It's just 
it's sensational. It's nestled in between a, a massive rocky outcrop called Gulaga, which is one of the biggest um, mountains, mountain ranges separate from the divide on the east coast. And then we have um, Nachinuka, Little Drom. So it's, it's a real um, area that's seeped in um, Indigenous tradition. Uh, our farmers are reclaimed peat swamp. So we've got really um, fertile organic soils, decomposted granite soils. We have lovely sea air. We have fresh water flowing through our farm. So we're quite fortunate where we're located. And Tilba has like a little microcosm too. It's, um, it's quite temperate. It does get a little bit chilly in winter, but certainly not as chilly as you are down in Gippsland. But, but it does get a little bit cold here. And um, But in summer, so the extremes are not outrageous. It's like a fairly temperate, temperate area, which is good for dairy farming because um, dairy farming can be quite challenging. It's one thing to make cheese and put milk into a bottle, but to manage the farm as well is uh, quite a a a big thing to be able to do. Um, so we were milking Jersey cows for about 15 years and then we, we wanted to take some more control over our own future. We have six children together um, and they grew up on the farm, which was great, a really good lifestyle for the kids to grow up in. But we wanted to create something that hopefully one day the kids could come back in and and help run the business or be part of the the building of it and just to see where we could take it to so the journey i think as well was really uh, interwoven with food ethic too my mother was um uh quite into ayurvedic and into anything that you grew at home and you made your own food and you do so we we definitely follow that bent and it was really important to us to know that what we were feeding our family and ourselves and our community was of the best quality possible. And I've already explained how wonderful the farm is from a like a geological point of view, but also from a, um, a practice point of view, we, we're not organic, but we're really careful about what we do use and we, we really um, want to look after our animals and have them as robust as possible without using mainstream uh, chemical-based fertilizers or pesticides and fungicides and we, we just don't want those in our food chain if we can avoid it so um our journey i keep saying journey sorry that's such a cliche term. Well, it is really i know and it has been it's it's been look the story is this when, when i first started looking around to build a cheese factory and that's what I had images of being on farm, one little cheese room and making cheese and people could come and they could have a look and they could taste and be fantastic. Well, like all good laid plans, they don't often turn out like you envisage. So now we have a monster of a factory <laughs> that <laughs> requires so much energy and effort to look after that even though I'm far removed from what the original dream was, it's still a remarkable story. I was going to say, so from where you started from 20 years ago um, to have this dairy and milk Jersey cows and and the idea to, to have a lovely little sort of uh, cheesery there, yep. uh, we, that's obviously, you know, it's a good period of time and so much has happened and changed, yep. uh, no doubt, in the dairy industry. What, what have you seen as, you know, some of the biggest challenges 
um, that you've faced and all the dairy industry as a whole faces today? I think there's been a a lot of maturation throughout the industry because when we first started there, the average age of the farmer in the Bega Valley was about 67 years of age and that and that was you know 20 years ago so we we've got a fairly aged business population in terms of dairying and there was there's a lot of the, the dairy industry is interesting that there's a lot of tradition in there but there's also a lot of younger people that have come onto the field that have changed things up and there's a lot of technology and a lot of different processes and i think that the commoditization of milk as a um, product has forced dairy farmers to produce as much as they can with little input because you had to actually get more efficient or you die basically so i think if i if i look back and i think what i've said in the beginning that we were able to convince the bank to lend us some money to buy the farm that wouldn't happen now we the, our bank manager looked us in the eye and said with the cheese factory in the farm and said we wouldn't lend you the money now to do what you have done, what you did, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago. It's just that the whole financial system has changed. The world has changed. So I think financial constraints are going to be one of the biggest obstacles in the future for young people to get into the industry because you look at your farm, millions of dollars. Cows, million dollars. <laughs> like, plant and equipment, like before you know it, you've racked up five million bucks. And it's like, how are you going to return that providing a commoditized product? So we're looking for financial security for food production to be viewed as such as a viable industry that should be nurtured and supported because it's not centralized because by the sheer nature of it, it can't all be eroded. So if you have farms that are spread out geographically and you have lots of players, then that gives us food security. And I know at this point that Australia is a mass exporter of food, and but we saw on the coast here in uh, December 19, it was actually New Year's Eve, December, when the fires came in onto the, and they hit the coast, that there was a shutdown in this area and the roads were closed. So you couldn't get in from the south, the west or the north. And there, all of our transport lines, because everything is brought in on the back of a truck, there was no food coming into the coast. We have tourists here. There was no internet. There was no power. There was no food. And there was a lot of people that were starting to panic a little bit about, well, in times of disaster, which seems to be this world that we live in now, how are we going to actually make sure that we can look after our own communities? Now, I think that's a story that has got a lot more development to do and farms are going to play a key role in that. So one of the, I think the benefits, you asked me how do we think things have changed since we started, is that we've gone from sending you know 25,000 litres of milk in a stainless steel tank down to a local processor to coming up to our business here where we can feed it out then and we can feed our local communities. That if we had have tried to start this probably 20 years ago, it may not have gotten off the ground because I don't think the emphasis 
from the public was there. The desire for people to have locally grown food, good quality food. They want to know that authenticity and truth of where your food comes from. And our farm is exposed. It's on a highway. You can't hide anything. It is what it is. It's muddy. It's it, it has good, it goes through drought, it goes through floods, it goes through, and but it's all there for people to see. They can drive past our farm and look at these really robust, healthy Jersey cows out on the lush green paddocks of Tilba Tilba and have confidence that when you're buying that product, that's what you're getting. You're getting a piece of that lifestyle. You're getting a piece of the, the goodness that is the Tilba um, the Tilba soil, the Tilba air, the Tilba water, and you're getting truth and authenticity. And I think that's probably one of the biggest changes. There's so much to unpack there, Erica. I think uh, the, what you touched on there in particular when you talk about the, the, the fiscal model of saying, which is which is quite upsetting and disturbing, isn't it, to say that if mm. you started uh, a dairy farm today in terms of banks not lending farms it, it it's a real oh it highlights the madness and and challenge that yeah. of putting this milk into this commoditized product that there is something seriously wrong in that financial model like yeah. that that it's that even to to help grow and support the, the dairy industry and again you know you touched on there the the bushfires in um december 2019 and i mean do you think and you talked about well, one. How were you? Yeah, <laughs> frightened. Like you know, yeah. Frightened. How were, how we were had, you all? With- well, for, for us here, Til- I don't know if you've been to Tilbury Dan. Tilbury is Central Tilbury, and Tilbury Tilbury is uh, a National Trust village. It's um, listed because whilst there's nothing immensely remarkable about most of the buildings, it's a weatherboard village that is true to form that has houses that are, you know, well over 100 years old and has been and have been preserved. So you drive down the street of Tilba and it's quite the same as it was 100 years ago. Well, there's a, a little bit more development, but it's kind of like a little niche, a little collective that, that is going to maintain what Tilba is and was. We had bushfires ringing the whole way around us. We had um, the town had been evacuated probably four times. We had the... Uh, the RFS saying we cannot save you. We haven't got the resources to save this town. So if you stay and fight, that's up to you. Like, and they they cannot. They're all volunteers, so they were remarkable. They were unbelievable. But most of Tilbury had left. There was probably six to eight people that had stayed in the town to try and um, protect their buildings. And the uh, fire literally ringed around the back of Dromedary. It had already burnt through Cavago, as everyone knows that tragic, tragic, horrible story. And then it came up around the back of Central Tilba and it came down from around Naruma and Delmenia as well. So there were lessons to be learnt there, but it, it felt quite isolating. It felt like you were, um, it was a war. It, it really felt that there was this, threat that not only was there just a, a fire threat that no one could put out it was that they couldn't have done anything about it it was far too ferocious and too too big but it made me realize that we were vulnerable 
um, and for Nick and myself and our kids and my nephews and my daughter's uh, boyfriend at the time, we were like sentries and they were doing, um, we had tin all over the windows and we were like a, a well-oiled machine and it was a 24-hour watch for, for a period of time. So there was that kind of um, I would never have left and Nick, my husband, would never have left our cows. It wouldn't have mattered. Even if that fire came up over the mountain, you can't leave your cows. How do you leave 500 animals to burn to death? It's like if you could do something, you'd be cutting fences, sending them down to the swamp, trying to get them all to safety. So there's that. You know, I think it was a very traumatic time for a lot of people. I think, uh, yeah, I think what farmers went through in all of in those communities is something tends to horrifically almost be pushed to the side a little bit with going from unprecedented bushfires into a global pandemic. I think we don't talk enough about that and the challenges and the rebuilding that still needs to be done in so many of those communities uh, before COVID um, that it's it sort of uh, almost sits in the background, which, which is – but I think oh, I, I really feel for you all and I'm so glad that, you know, you're okay and the farm's okay. Just, uh, you know, those bushfires were absolutely horrific and I think we do need to remember and talk about those uh, stories a lot more being yeah. that – the, the the threat was it was a present threat of uh, you know a visual threat um i look you know i'm so sorry that it i'm glad you're yeah look you're it's, okay. like we, it's, we were like for for us we we came out of it relatively unscathed apart from loss of trade and stress and we have a farm that we we buy milk from as well in cabago and he lost his father and his brother in the fire so no matter what you like, you don't you feel like you don't have the right because there's always someone out there that has suffered far more than you, and has experienced loss. And then you have uh, COVID, a COVID ep- epidemic on top of that, and it's almost like um, you you're waiting for the next thing to come. Because they were, or both of those incidences affected a lot of us, or all of Australia and the globe, the pandemic, obviously, and the, the fires affected a lot of people. And so in my, I'm 49, I don't recall anything in my lifetime that has ever been such a, it, it, the potential to be such a unifying thing um, where people actually recognise how important community is and community strength is. And, and and COVID as well. So like for, for us, we're incredibly lucky because on the on the coast or in rural Australia, and I still call us rural here, even though we're coast and there's you know there's built up areas around us. You've got Bega and Batemans Bay, and you've got areas like that. But I came to work, I do my job, I go back home. I came to work, I do my job, I go back home. We go up to the Canberra farmers markets once a week. I go to work, do my job, go back home. My life didn't change a great deal. Because people say, how's COVID affected you? Well, it's killed my trade at the shop front. But apart from that, I think it 
and that's probably why a lot of people are moving to rural areas because you're not in in a built-up area where you're stuck and you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything and you can't like here we can still go out put our hands in the soil put my feet on the ground you know like it, it's i think that even though we're looking for the next threat let's look for the silver lining in the next threat and how does how does what does being part of a community member mean hmm. you touched on something before about um, the commoditization of da- the dairy industry and that need for being able to supply your local community um, obviously with the the milk that you produce now and you're able to to service those local markets have you seen you think do you think that was that I suppose what am I trying to say? And so, do you think that uh, acknowledgement of supporting local was happening before the bushfires, or do you think that has been amplified since, and/or even more so going into that into the pandemic? For uh, for has this our been case, a trend? It, it has. Like for for us, we we started bottling in uh, two thousand and twelve in December two thousand and twelve, and we have. Um, enjoyed amazing support from our local community. And I think that that's the story that I see happening with Little Big Dairy, with Bafleria, with Gippsland, with like there's a real desire out there for people to have locally produced foods. Um, so we were supported. And there was a time when, uh, was it, um, what was the one that went to the wall, um, oh, how we forget so quickly. Murray Goulburn went to the wall. And they, remember, they um, back, back-charged all of the farmers for um, overpayment. And all of a sudden, all these farms were like, well, how am I going to survive? And so, and I'm bringing that incidence up because what we saw is we saw a spike in our sales that lasted about six weeks. And then people forgot and they go back to doing their thing. And they go back to living and then everyone's under pressure now. Everyone's under, you know, they're just trying to survive. They're trying to make ends meet. But this trend hasn't changed. So we saw a spike after the fires and we see that COVID is probably still around, but that desire to support local and everyone probably buys for different reasons, but to support smaller players seems to be, a growing trend that isn't going away and hopefully that will whilst it won't mitigate the cost of setting up hopefully it actually lessens the, the commoditized commoditization and encourages decentralization or that decentralized model to still exist that whilst all the milk's going to processes who are play an important role because you've got a lot of people that want product and how do you do that if you have little businesses like ours everywhere do people have the flexibility the financial flexibility to set that up and the knowledge and that's what I was going to say to you earlier on you, you said uh, about the story so I just wanted to go backtrack and just talk about that for one second I rang a, a, um, a fellow Jersey uh, farmer who was making cheese and, and making really good headway into market and I I rang her and I was like 27 or something. I was really a lot younger than I am now. And I said, oh, 
this is fantastic. This is what we'd like to do. What what advice can you give me? She said, I'll give you some advice. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a bit jaded. But <laughs> now I know what she meant is that it's not easy to set a business like this up and run it, all of the facets of it. It's a challenge. And so I take my hat off to the major producers because they must be dealing with challenges exemplified to what I have or amplified. Um, I think one of the, um, I mean, I'm, as I said to you, I'm based down now in South Gippsland and I love nothing more than going to, on the rare occasions I go to supermarkets, is seeing uh, the Gippsland jersey yep. shelf empty yep. and the large commercial brands full. Yep. And I think there yeah. is that uh, whole thing about supporting local and that, that is a trend that's only growing and growing and I, I hope that you talk about the silver linings yes uh, if there is a silver lining out of this this mad you know 18 months that uh, we've all had that if the more we think about local the more we are connected to rural communities that can only mean a good thing um, in particular whether it be in particular, agricultural products like milk, like cheese, uh, because, as you said, without the farmers and access to them, we don't eat. <laughs> well, food is pretty pivotal. So we don't like, it's like what is the Maslow's hierarchical needs? We need shelter, we need food, we need water and protection. And then everything else that comes beyond there is, you know, our dressings or trimmings. But we, we do need to make sure that we have our, our basis in place. But no one is going to do it for you. I think that was probably a lesson for us over the last two years is that as, com as members of a community, whether you are producing or you're a purchaser or you manufacturing something or you're making something or whatever, like we all need to play our role and our individual responsibility is that we all need to be able to stand on our own two feet. And we've had a thing in this area that um, was called River Cottage, which was a like a, um, a, a TV program and it was about being sustainable and it was about looking after yourself and it was about being able to feed your family good food. It was about being able to look all these things that we'd kind of lost uh, connection with that, oh, I can do my own chooks if I want to. Like if you wanted to do meat chook and you've got a little bit of area, I can have a veggie garden. I can actually harvest my own seeds and that's like whilst it's great that we've got uh, food producers and it's not just dairy, there's beef, there's vegetables, there's fruit, there's there's a local pasta maker in the area. There's like there's so many things that are, that's not like this boutique quirky thing. It's like, no, this is actually really solid and we need this in our area. But every individual to take responsibility for themselves because no one's coming to save you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... Uh... I agree with you there indeed. And it's a, we talk about sustainability of produce as well, but there's also a financial, you know, sustainability uh, as, as a very significant part of that yeah. of, of that cycle as well. Um, I want to talk about, obviously, cheese. Yeah. Um, Sorry, we, that's we what are we're talking about, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, Erica, thank you for sharing, you know, that story. I think it's 
it's critical we have these conversations and we hear from people like yourselves about what is actually happening and because that just adds further context and understanding and respect for for what you all do um tell us about the cheese side of things in the business when did that start Uh, you said you started the dairy 20 years ago was it straight away did it evolve how did that come to be well, I think for me, it probably started when I was at home with the kids. So my baby's now 18. So that was um, quite some time ago. And I was looking for uh, something to do outside feeding calves and doing, you know, book work and those sort of things. So I started making cheese in the kitchen and and it, that was driven from my um, mother's love of um, producing for your family producing food, making what you can. And it was quite mesmerising, the cheese-making process. It was like uh, alchemy in the vat. It was um, it was wonderful and Jersey milk is just so uh, wonderful to make cheese with as well. It's so rich and creamy. And so I didn't have any family knowledge of cheesemaking. I didn't, there's no old cheesemaker in the area that took me to one side and taught me all their skills or so I had to go out and try and learn the craft myself. So there's not a great deal of scope in Australia to learn. Like you, you kind of have to pick up as you're going along. There are some forums like Asgard that are, are great where uh, cheesemakers share knowledge and information, which is a wonderful thing. But I went and uh, Gilbert Chandler was still operating then as a um, cheese college. So I went and did some courses there with, um, a couple of the cheese gurus and then I travelled around Australia and did cheese courses in like I followed one particular man around and went and did a lot of his courses because I liked his style and then I applied for a cheese making scholarship which through Dairy Australia and uh, National Foods back then it was National Foods and I was successful for that so that was amazing so you had to have a business plan of not just why do you want to be a cheesemaker it was quite an expensive scholarship, so it was. I had to put forward what was my passion and where did I think that I could take my passion within this industry. And so we'd always wanted to do on farm, so that was um, my um, my business plan was that that I wanted to um, have people come and experience a little bit of the farm, but also have that boutique little cheese factory and. Um, so I won the scholarship and it sent me over to um, Italy and France and um, England and then around Australia for the theoretical component. It was I, I went to Gilbert Chandler then and but I also went to um, Millowa and to Lactos and to King Island. So that was like a foot in the door of something that I'd never seen from like making my own kitchen to going to these commercial um, style factories. But the beauty of it was, even though they're commercial, it's all hands-on. It's all like it's not like if you're an authentic uh, cheesemaker, like I know a lot of the bulk cheddars and things like that are, are completely processed and automated, but a lot, all the, hand, all the small hand cheesemakers are actually, you know, hand putting in their cultures, hand stirring, hand cutting, hand, you know, uh, hand cooking. Like, so it was good to see that it was like there was this um, tradition had been um, preserved. And so that's 
where I actually started was doing that. And then um, basically we we went through the whole council um, rigmarole of trying to get a cheese factory approved on, on our farm, which proved to be too difficult. It was just too expensive. What they wanted us to do was... Uh, and probably because of it's actually not even location. Actually, it was the expense of the. It came down to the car park was going to be quarter of a million bucks, and we're like, "What? Well, we didn't have any money." It was like we were going to like borrow, beg, and steal to do it. So that kind of we just went, you know what? Too too expensive, too hard. So that's when we actually came up and we made an offer to the two ladies that owned the historic uh, ABC Cheese Factory in Central Tilba. Um, it well, hadn't been operating since the 70s where, where you, with milk, like they'd been doing club or blended cheese here and they'd done an amazing job. A man called Peter Story had built it up to be a, a fabulous business and he sold the brand off to, I think it might have been to uh, uh, National Foods, it was actually, um, King Island first, sorry, and then King Island bought National Foods. Um, so that Tilba brand had left the building but they were still cutting and waxing here um so we ended up putting a lot of plant in here and we wanted to do liquid milk as well like for us it's a balance between cheese and milk so we um now do our full cream jersey milk low fat jersey milk we do um cream we do yogurt we do um a lot of soft cheeses do halloumis we do uh feathers we do so we do quite a broad range here as well so um it's still a learning curve. It's always a learning curve. And that I think one of the obstacles that we've found is like, where do you get the knowledge to improve? Because the hard thing is that other cheesemakers don't want to give the knowledge because that's their intellectual property. That's everything to them. They can't just hand the knowledge out. When I went to France, it wasn't in a, a commercial cheese factory. It was to a cheese college. And there were three of them across France and they had thousands of students. And so that's the difference of how cheese making was viewed in Europe as opposed to cheese making in Australia. So wouldn't it be wonderful to see a purpose built or to get something revamped again, a purpose built cheese college where people like us that are trying to train ourselves as we go along can go and improve our skills and improve our knowledge and improve the industry. I think that's uh, I think that's coming. Uh, I think there's uh, some things definitely happening on, on that front. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the festival in particular is seeing a range of cheesemakers coming together in collaboration, not competition. And I think it's yeah, great of, of of celebrating diversity of styles of cheese and and tasting and and linking everyone together. I think that's been one of the things that I, I know I've really enjoyed about. Uh, the festival and even the collective as well as connecting cheesemakers to share ideas and share different cheeses and to be proud of it because i think australia you said it's 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 come a long way in a relatively short period of time and i i hope that uh, that continues um here's a question for you what what's you've got the milk production you've got the abc uh, cheese factory and i should ask as well we can come and visit that can't we yes you can Can absolutely yeah so tilba's um it's basically a commercial slash residential village where it's open 300. Oh, actually, it's closed for Christmas Day and Boxing Day, but it's open 99% of the time. And you can come to the factory here 
and uh, you can actually look into the factory, you can see product being made, you can sample, uh, you can have obviously milkshakes and we or coffees and all of those type of things as well. But you can certainly come and get a feel for what we do here. That's great. So what's the what's the future? What do you see in the future for Tilba Real Dairy? What's next? Well, we are relocating our shop to the next door building to increase our um, packaging capacity here. So putting in a packaging plant, which is a really important part of cheese making. Um, I would like to see us have a farm focus. I would like to see a like a, a maturation cave somewhere on farm where we can, if I can do a big loop and I can go back to the original concept. So you've set the business up, which is great and it's important. You have to be fiscally responsible as you can't afford to do any of it. So what, what we've done here, I'm really proud of it. And I think that without our, our team and my husband and I working tirelessly, you couldn't create it, but I'd like to see the full circle go back to the farm with the cheesery on farm. I would love to see that. That to me would be the not the final journey, but it would be where I could let this tick along and run itself and I could be back doing what I loved doing. I can get out of the office <laughs> and get into the factory, into a little factory where you're just about creation and it's just about evolution of product and it's about the tantalising, you know, all sensors, all sensors, the visual, the um, organoleptic, like uh, that's what I would love to say. I'd love to go to Europe to learn a, a hard cheese style that we don't do so much here in Australia and that's what I'd like to do. That's my full I was, circle. I was going to ask you, uh, <laughs> is there one cheese that you don't make? But want to yes i'd love to make what would it be i'd love to make comte because that was where i went to in france and i fell in love with it and it's one of those things is that you i need to build like purpose-built maturation rooms here to um just to, to trial that style so that's what i would like to do something like that Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us here on the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. Um, really, uh, it's been wonderful to hear the story and uh, the journey that's been and, and also the personal accounts of um, yeah, a pretty crazy time over the last 18 months. So thanks so much, Erica. Oh, really my pleasure. You thank us. you, Dan. It's lovely to have a chat to you. And it's, um, it's always good because you get caught up in your business and running and putting out spot fires and you know, balancing things. And so it's good to have that um, reignition of what, why you started doing what you're doing. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening in to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast. If you'd like to hear more, we do hope you consider subscribing or even better, share it with your mates or via the socials. It all goes a long way to help us spreading the good word about Australian cheese. If you'd like to get in touch or have any feedback at all, please follow us at the socials at, at Mole Cheese or send us an email to hello at moldcheesefestival.com. We've got so many more conversations to come. So until next time, cheers.